welcome to the KC City Church Audio Podcast. We pray you enjoy this following sermon. Wonderful to be in the house of the Lord. One day in the house of the Lord is better than? Amen, amen. I've got the awesome privilege and pleasure to invite Graham, and we want to welcome Julia as well. You know, grab a seat, sir. Uh, we're going to do a bit of an, an, an interview before the message. Um, this, is, this is the book that Graham had written, The Guilt Busters. Bus, busters. So when, I, when, I, when Graham asked me to sort of you know, do an interview on this book, I said I need the book. Uh, to read that, and, and I, I completely, I didn't get to buy that, but I want to really thank you for dropping it over at my place. And when I started reading that, I thought it was an easy book to read, but it ain't an easy book to read. It's not easy reading. It's extremely reflective, contemplative, and it just takes you on a journey. And each one will be taken, I'm assuming, will be taken on a different journey, mm. depends depending on how and what's happened in their lives or how they begin to perceive things. So one of the questions I had in mind, Graham, was, well, is this, that uh, what, what's, the, what's the gist of this, of this book? How, what, how, how would you put it in maybe just a couple of sentences, right. if it's possible at all? Yes, like why on earth would you write a book yeah. like that? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. yes. Well... Well, it, came, it was born out of a number of things. It was born out of the fact that I myself, uh, as a child, was, um, was a, uh, a victim of institutional child sexual abuse. Mm, mm. And, uh, and because of that, um, because I've uh, shared that journey with so many people, most of the years of my ministry I've been involved in counselling people who've travelled that same journey. And uh, every time I go to a church, every time, and I'm not exaggerating by using the word every, but every time I go to a church, every time I speak about this topic, I meet people who say, this is my story. Mm. So I realized that out there in the church world and beyond the church world, there were thousands of, of people who carried that pain and didn't know what to do with it. Mm. And uh, then, of course, the Royal Commission came along and uh, some of us as counsellors and others were involved to some extent with people who went before the commission and some of the people who were involved in the commission. And the sheer numbers of people who, uh, who um, sent emails to the commission and rang the commission up to say, this was my journey. Of course, that commission only focused on the people who had been abused in institutions, both government and church. Mm. And, uh, and, and the figures, the numbers were enormous. But here is a truth that will really shake you that. Nine, over 90% of all sexual abuse doesn't take place in institutions. It takes places, place in homes, mm. in families. So if you take those huge numbers that the, the um, Royal Commission uncovered and then you add 90% again to that 
that gives you some idea of the tremendous need that's out there. And I just felt that there was a need for a book that somehow addressed that. You know, in, in the first, almost in, at the start of the book, it starts off with, you know, a room in St. Kilda. And it's about John who writes to his dad about his abuse as a teenager. Uh, so as a, as a victim, there, were, there are two things that I just wanted to just put this by you. And one is that he felt that he was being punished by someone whom he thought was a friend and by a God he thought was everybody's friend except himself. Yes. Would you care to speak into that? that yes. You know, as, as a victim, someone who's, yes. who feels, I mean, who's gone through that, yes. you know, feels that, man, God cares for everyone else except right. me. Yes. One of, the, um, one of the strange but true realities about both sexual abuse and physical violence yes. is that the victim ends up feeling guilty, mm. ashamed. They feel like, I feel like I'm, I'm ignoring all these people back here. Um, they, feel, they feel ashamed. They, they somehow take responsibility for the event. And, uh, and for me, I was told when I was abused that if I hadn't been a naughty boy, this would not happen to me. Mm. And that, it's interesting how long those words stay with you that even as an adult I would walk into a room and say, you know, in a few minutes everybody here is going to discover that I'm a naughty boy. Mm. Now, it's irrational, it's stupid, you would say, if you've never experienced that, but it's true. And so John in the book, the uh, first character in the book, um, is really saying, uh, this is all my fault and, and I'm being punished by God and I'm being punished by others for the badness in me. And that's one of the reasons why it takes on average uh, something like 24 years before anybody will actually speak about their experience. Average of 24 years. I heard of a man this week who as a result of reading the book shared that he was sexually abused uh, as a child. He's now in his 70s and this is the first time he's ever told anybody. So it's very painful to revisit it. And what we have in that story that you mentioned is John writing a letter to a father who's already died because he feels that that's the safest way that he can revisit what happened to him uh, 20 years ago. Mm. And and John in that story was a young teenager. But he also says this that uh, I I believe this this was a statement. He He felt that decisions that he had to make were not were not choices but they were options right so he didn't there was there was no freedom in feeling that he could have made particular choices but these are these are the only options i have yes you know so some in that setting probably not maybe not john may feel that suicide is an option mm. uh, yes um Drinking, alcohol, alcohol. drug-taking, um, suicide, uh, yeah, um, mental illness, they are all very much part of this journey. Um, I had a, an email from somebody I've never met but who is uh, 
he's some sort of um, head of prisons and so on in, in another state. And he just wrote to me to say that one in every three prisoners in the prisons in our country uh, have been sexually abused as children. And he was only he was talking primarily about men's prisons, but but then I mentioned that to a lady who's been a chaplain in women's prisons for years. She said, "Yeah, it'd be be much the same." Mm. Mm. So when when someone goes through deep seated abuse of this nature, it really brings them to a place where they feel that these are the only options they have in. You know, I've, I've also come across where people feel that that's the, strangely, the safest place to be in. Mm. Yes. And the difficulty to pull themselves out of yes. that because there are no other, I don't have a choice. This is the only option I have. Like, this is my lot in life. Yes. You can't. Yes. Yeah, oh, look, one of, the, one of the things we often talk about with all sorts of um, violence is is the the impact of disempowerment. You understand what I mean? That somebody else takes control and nothing you can do or say is going to change that because in most cases you are, you are disempowered. The other person is more powerful, older, uh, and has got everything going for them and, and you haven't. So, so you experience disempowerment and then that disempowerment if impacts you when it comes to making decisions. I felt as a young teenager that that my major choice was to the 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 the, the, the I had no choices, but what was my option was to protect myself from getting hurt again, and so I became very angry and very hostile. Um, Lots of people say to me, I can't imagine you being hostile, but, <laughs> but there, somewhere in Gippsland there's a, there's a man probably in his 80s now who can remember his head going through a shop window and <laughs> me being on the other end of the head. Um, so, so there was a lot of anger and a lot of violence uh, in me, but it was all about my only option was to make sure I never got hurt again. And... <laughs> And so a lot of the, the turning to alcohol, the turning to drugs um, and even suicide is around this idea that I don't have any choices but I do have some options and, and these are some of them. Mm. Mm. You, you were a boxer, weren't you? I, I, yes, I took up boxing too, <laughs> um, mainly because you could punch people legally, yeah. Right. <laughs> You know, last question is this, Graham: Is who who do you think should be reading this this book? Um, and 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 following that is how should they read it? Well, I think you should read the rest of it. <laughs> I will. <laughs> um, I, I I think I think it's a helpful book for most people. Um, I think it's helpful for those who I hope and pray it will be helpful for those who have been wounded in this way, who've suffered any sort of abuse or trauma that's impacting their life now because it gives pathways of healing. Mm. And uh, both uh, because I've been a Christian pastor and a counsellor, 
Um, I, I work with both um, psychological and spiritual dynamics, and they are in the book. So, so I, I'd like people like that to read it. It it's re would be really helpful for people who've been the carers of folk who've been abused, that is, parents and friends, because, um, because it will help you understand where they came, were coming from and what, the, what was at the base of their behaviour. That's really important. The th third thing is that I think we all, from time to time, are going to come into con contact with people who um, behave in bizarre ways and that that bizarre behaviour is linked to past trauma. I, I always say to people, remember, no matter who you meet, no matter what your first impression is, the one thing you don't know is their backstory. Okay, everybody has a backstory. Everybody has a story that has impacted who they are today. Sometimes that story can be reversed, uh, and when they well, often it's reversed when they come to know Jesus, uh, but they that story is still there, and uh, it impacts uh, us in various ways. Just a funny little thing, but I can walk into a restaurant, be really feeling very, very happy. I'm 80 years old now, but I can walk into a restaurant with Jules, sit down, and the first thing I do is I look around the restaurant and I know exactly who's there and where they're sitting. And Julie will tell you I can usually overhear their conversations as well. <laughs> I just happen to have good hearing. But... Uh, but you know what that's about? That, that's about being aware of danger. Now, here I am, healed by God in every other respect. Uh, I, don't, I don't feel wounded by my experience now because God has healed me. But some of the habits that you form uh, are impacted by your backstory. So that can, that can impact relationships, that can impact behaviours, that can impact your physical health and your mental health. So, so, uh, um, so, so I'm really hopeful that people will read the book and say, I need to pray more deeply for that person. I, I need to be the sort of person they would talk to. If they wanted to tell somebody their story, I want to be the sort of person who can hear that. And there's a there's a man in the story, in the story, um, called Father Simon, who uh, represents those who've put himself in a place where he can almost anybody can share with him, with him and feel safe. And that's what I hope will happen. So, and then then I've written it for the church because the sad. The sad story is that um, many, many of the people that um, came before the Royal Commission were abused in churches and in church institutions. And uh, I just want children in churches to be safe. And um, my prayer is the book will help do that as well. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Wonderful. Can you, can you maybe just finally just add to how should someone who's gone through abuse, maybe even going through abuse, how should they be reading this? Um, and what, what should they 
what should they be doing through yes. as, as they read this? I, I think um, as they read it, they should, they should start where John starts and tell somebody their story. Mm. I may be talking to somebody who's never told anybody their story, but I just want to say this. I know it's the hardest thing in the world to do. We would do everything we could to avoid ever having to revisit the pain of that story. But that's the, that's the lie the devil's telling you. Because the, the doorway to healing begins when we open up the story and we share it with somebody who listens deeply to us without judging us. The, s the second thing that comes out of that is the opportunity to take the blame and the shame that I've carried for ever since it happened and place it where it belongs on the perpetrator. Every perpetrator of violence, be it domestic violence or sexual abuse, knows what they are doing. They know they are hurting people. The blame lies purely with them. No child is ever responsible for the fact that they were sexually abused. No way. And, and the blame must be laid there and then, then all the other processes that the book deals with about... Um, forgiving ourselves and forgiving others and so on, they can, they can then occur and allowing Christ to bring his healing, that can occur. But the first thing is I've got to talk to somebody because it's a secret that will destroy you. Mm. Thanks, Graham. Thank you so much. Really appreciate this. But I think a huge thank you. You know, on, on our behalf, and I'm sure on several others as well, for you to... I mean, it's a courageous thing to actually really sit and to write this book and to put this into a format where it's going to help so many of, so many of us mm. and so many people out there. Yeah. So we really want to thank you for that. I understand this is your second book. There's a third in the oven at the moment. <laughs> right? third, third one at the publishers and the oh, fourth the one publish. in the oven, yeah. Oh, and the fourth one. <laughs> Gosh, in the oven. So this is, this is, so there's a fourth one coming, but these books are available out there, so please... Get this, not just for yourself. I understand that it might be really helpful uh, to get it for others whom we feel may absolutely benefit. Yes. We had a lady uh, contact us yesterday and uh, she, she said she'd read it over Easter mm, and she mm. said, I want to buy multiple copies, mm, whatever that wow. means. And wow. she said, because uh, I just meet people all the time that this book would help. So I thought mm. that was pretty good recommendation. That's, yeah. That's, yeah. that's brilliant. Thank you so much. We look forward to hearing from you some more today. Let's put our hands together and welcome Graham. Thank you. Thank you. It is available and uh, the church will allow you to pay by card, so that's, that's fantastic, and uh, feel free to help yourself. There, is a, there are some copies of my first book as well, uh, which is about the connection between anger and fear, uh, or fear and anger, and uh, you might like uh, to have a look at that as well.
I want to read a, a passage of scripture to you. Can I do that from uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 4? And uh, Paul is writing to first generation Christians in Corinth. It's member that Paul writes to in all letters, people who live in occupied countries. And so they suffer, they're suffering all sorts of things. Many of them are, are slaves, many are prisoners, and they read his. Therefore, mercy has given us this new way. We never give up. We reject all shameful deeds and underhanded methods. We don't try to trick anyone or distort the word of God. We tell the truth before God and all who are honest know this. If the good news we preach is hid behind us, it is hidden only from people who are perishing. Satan is blind blind those who don't believe. They are unable to see the glorious light of the good news. They don't understand this message about the glory of Christ who is the exact likeness of God. You see, we don't go around preaching about ourselves. We preach that Jesus Christ is Lord and we ourselves are your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let there be light in the darkness has made this light shine in our hearts so we could know the glory of God that is seen in the face of Jesus Christ. We now have this light shining in our hearts. But we ourselves are like fragile clay jars containing this great treasure. This makes it clear that our great power is from God, not from ourselves. We ourselves are pressed on every side by troubles, but we are not crushed. We are perplexed, but not driven to despair. We are hunted down, but never abandoned by God. We get knocked down, but we are not destroyed. Through suffering, our bodies continue to share in the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be seen in our bodies. Yes, we live under constant danger of death because we serve Jesus so that the life of Jesus will be evident in our dying bodies. So we live in the face of death, but this has resulted in eternal life for you. But we continue to preach because we have the same kind of faith the psalmist had when he said, I believe in God, so I spoke. We know that God who raised the Lord Jesus will also raise us with Jesus and present us to himself together with you. All of this is for your benefit. And as God's grace reaches more and more people, there will be great thanksgiving and God will receive more and more glory. That is why we never give up. Though our bodies are dying, our spirits are being renewed every day. For our present troubles are small and won't last very long. Yet they produce for us a glory that vastly outweighs them and will last forever. So we don't look at the troubles we can see now. Rather, we fix our gaze on things that cannot be seen. For the things we see now will soon be gone. But the things we cannot see will last forever. So Paul, the apostle, going through all the hardship because of what he does and 
does what he does because of the Christ who lives in him, writes this letter and reminds us that all of us are like clay jars. This clay jar sits in our, um, sits in our kitchen and everything that doesn't have a home ends up in the jar. Do you have things like that? You know, cupboards, boxes. Oh, I don't know where this belongs. And toss it in there. So I have deliberately not even looked at it this morning. I just brought it. So I don't know what's in the jar, but if this jar represents our lives, if, if we are clay jars, which means we're, we eventually will break or whatever, but then then people's lives are really interesting, aren't they? I mean, once you start delving into people's lives, it's really interesting. Uh, I've met a lady here today who I first met when she was 16 and probably last met when she was 16, and I worked with her father. And, and you know, they're the memories that you sometimes, you know, the things you sort of, you put your your hand into your life and you pull something out you don't know is there and it reminds you of something. Let's see what we've got here. Uh, I don't know what that is. What's that? That's a toy of something, but it's lost its... Oh, is it? Oh, there you are. It's a tool. I used this often. No, I didn't. <laughs> it's, it's a tool which I'm sure in the right hands would come in very handy. There's a rubber band. Rubber bands always come in handy. You need lots of rubber bands. Uh, there's a portion of a tape measure. Oh, it's a whole tape. Oops. Yes, it's a whole tape measure, but it's a very short one. This is for short people. <laughs> we don't have any in our house. Um, there's some wool. What else? Oh, look at this. A pair of pliers used by somebody who had paint on their hands. And they belonged to my mother-in-law. So there's a bit of history. She died when she was 103. And uh, they were hers. And they're in here because they don't have anywhere else to go. And there's a carpenter's pencil. Um, and uh, a patching kit for bikes. That reminds me of when I used to ride one. There's a lock. Used to go on the bike. So we could go on and pull our things out of here and they just remind us of, of what's hidden away in our lives that we probably don't think about unless somebody encourages us to do. The, the experiences of pain that we've had maybe and the experiences of joy that we've had. The people who've added positively to our lives the people who have wounded us by their actions and their behaviours, they're all stacked away in our memories. They all have impacted us in some way. Well, what else is in this earthen jar that might be worth looking at? Well, there is this envelope here that says good intentions. 
Um, we, all, we all have lots of good intentions, don't we? That's part of who we are and that makes us try really hard to be, uh, to be um, generous. We want to be generous. We want to be kind. Our intention is to be kind. Our intention is to be happy. We, we want to be happy, rich if possible, <laughs> faithful. We want to be faithful. We want to have good friendships. We want to be able to encourage other people. We want to be able to forgive the people who hurt us. We want to be helpful. We all have good intentions. They're the things that we value. We value them in others and we value them in ourselves. But there is a problem with that and that is that the Bible says that while we might have good intentions, we also have sin, a sin nature. That is, we have a tendency toward serving ourselves rather than others and rather than God. And uh, the Bible tells us that out of, uh, out of this in nature comes deceitfulness and harsh words and slander sometimes and anger and rage. It says we sometimes lie or steal out of that sin nature that we often carry resentment, bitterness, <clears throat> that we are capable of being immoral in all sorts of ways. Um, our sin nature means that we struggle with unbelief and disobedience. So we have good intentions, but we have a sin nature. And then we have, as well, stuck away in this earthen jar that represents us, we have other things like hurts. Some of us have experienced poverty in our lives. Some of us have had physical or mental injury. Some of us have suffered very deep, unexplainable losses in our life. Some of us have suffered sexual abuse. Some of us at school particularly and maybe at work have experienced bullying and isolation and abandonment. And these hurts have impacted deeply on who we are. But there's still something else in this jar and it's another envelope, and this time this envelope says is about the things that God has promised us. I, I bet you're glad we finally got to that envelope. You just about had enough of all the rest. Well, I just wanted to make my point. Now we've made it. So we have the things that God has promised. And every one of these things is really special, isn't it? He says he's promised us his love. Now, 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 look, if I said to you today, um, I love you, then, then you're not sure what that means, are you? Because I could use the word love in many different ways in the same sentence. I could say, I love chocolate eclairs, 
I love the Essendon Football Club. I love sunny days. I love my wife. I love my children. I love you. It all means something different, doesn't it? Because I love chocolate eclairs, but I wouldn't die for them. I love the Essendon Football Club, but they are a source of great grief to me. <laughs> we can mean different things with different... Usually when you love a football club, it's just hope, isn't it? Unless you're back for Richmond. Um, it's just hope. But... Uh, Beloved, and then, then God says that he not only loves me, but he has decided in his great love to adopt me as his child. Now, he created me in the first place. I, I am created by God. That's what I believe. That's what the Bible teaches. And I'm created in his image. So there are some aspects of this broken person that I am. There are some aspects of that that are made in the image of God and 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 I'm excited about that but that's not very much good to me when I'm disconnected from God so God in his love says I created you in my own image and now I'm adopting you back into my family I am your father and you are my child isn't that amazing and and and, and I love to think I've got some of the DNA of me dad, my heavenly father. And just as Jesus was the express image, that's what we read here today, of God the Father, I have now become someone in whom the image of God is. And that was possible. I wonder if we could put our first slide up there. That, that's possible because of what happened 2,000 years ago, do we have any slides? No, we don't have them. That's all right. Um, what happened 2,000 years ago was that God had a plan, right? He, he had a plan of which you and I were very important. We were right in the center of this plan. And God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, all being part of the Godhead, got together, or in whatever way you imagine that happening, and, and they devised a plan by which certain things would happen. Part of that plan was that God would become man, Jesus, and live on earth amongst us for 33 years, and then he would die on a cross, being the price for the sins of every generation that had ever lived or will ever live in the future. And he paid a price which means that every sin that we have ever committed, every sin that we will ever commit has been paid for by the life and blood of Jesus Christ who is God. <laughs> right? We got that. We're really excited about that. You're ready to go out and party because that's really exciting news. Then God said, but, but if Jesus is going to earth to do that, we've got to do something to enable him to be truly man and truly God at the same time. So we'll give him a body like other humans and a mind and emotions and feelings, 
but we will give him the Holy Spirit. And so, so that he will know the mind of God, so that he will be connected to the will and the plan of the Father, so that every miracle he performs will be a demonstration of God to the world, that when the world see him, they will see God. So the Holy Spirit comes on Jesus at his baptism. God says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And Jesus goes up in the power of the Holy Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. And he's tempted by the devil without sin. And through the next uh, three years, he is tempted by the devil in all sorts of ways, but without sin. And he does, and everything he does Everything he does is meant to say this is who God is. He is lover. He is healer. He is forgiver. He, he wants to embrace you. This is what he is like. But then the Godhead said, but that's not enough because people will not be persuaded because they see uh, uh, someone living in the perfect image of God. So something else must happen. This God-man must die and pay the price of the sin of the whole world. Now, I don't know how you, how you felt about Easter this year. I hope it was a good time for you. But you know one of the messages I got about Easter this year was that every painful experience that Jesus had in relation to the crucifixion was, was some aspect of man's sinfulness being laid on him. There was violence. There was abuse. There was false accusations. There was abandonment. There was heaps and heaps and heaps of anger. And it was all poured out on someone who had done nothing wrong. I mean, the whole history of 2,000 years keeps saying he's done nothing wrong. There is no one who could be, have a slate as clean as that, huh? Yeah. You know what happens when somebody dies? The first few days they're made into a saint and the rest of the, life, the, rest of the time the truth comes out. <laughs> 2,000 years there's been no truth about Jesus that would contradict the fact that he was a sinless human being and yet all the sin of the whole world was poured on him then. And, and, and this is not, you know, some people say he bore the wrath of God. But I want you to know he bore the wrath of man. He bore the wrath of Satan. He carried all that pain and he, he died because that was, is the last bastion of stepping into humanity. Yeah. He stepped into death. Right. He was separated from God. He stepped into darkness. He felt every aspect of the pain. And then the Godhead said, well, that, that, that's part of the plan, but it's no good if we leave him there. We must raise him from the dead. And so on the third day, Jesus rose from the dead and, uh, and, and he lives today. He lives today. 
He lives today. He lives in you, in the person. He sent you the Holy Spirit. That was part of the plan. He's re-establishing in you the image of God that has been broken. He's healing the brokenness. He's healing the woundedness. He is within you. And Jesus, our high priest, no longer a God-man, but God in entirety, stands in the presence of the Father and he, he, uh, he intercedes for us. I used to think, you know, you know what I used to think about Jesus being our intercessor? I used to think that every time I did something wrong, Jesus said, no, Father, don't zap him, he's one of ours. (laughs) That's what I used to think it was. But it's it's more than that. He he knows that I am, that I and you are still here carrying, struggling with the reality of sin and righteousness. And he knows how hard that sometimes is. He knows how hard the temptations are. He knows how hard it must be for us to feel like we failed in some way. And he's there interceding for us. He's saying, I'm standing in the gap for this person. And, you know, he just keeps doing it, doesn't he? Like he... He made sure you were here this morning. He made sure that whatever ways he wants to speak to you, he will today. So he's adopted us and he's given us the Holy Spirit, which is really wonderful. I've already mentioned that. He's given us spiritual gifts. That's pretty amazing. That means that he's made us part of his body, the church, and we all have a role And we've been gifted for that role. He's given us absolute acceptance. You know, there's nothing that I have to do to make God accept me more or love me more or forgive me more. It's done. It's all done. There's nothing I have to do to do that. I don't know of any other relationship that can stand on its own like that. But then there is no love as deep as the love of Jesus. And, and here's some good news. We talked about the sin nature that we have. Well, he's given us a new heart and he's renewing a right spirit within us. Now, now the new heart is something he's done. We've been born again and we have a new heart. It's uh, not perfect, but it's new. It has a capacity to connect with God, has a capacity to respond to God. It's a new heart. And he is renewing our spirit every day. There are things in our lives that need to be converted still, isn't there? You know, I might have become a Christian 60-odd years ago, but... And I would have said then that I have been converted and the next day I realized that wasn't true. I was being converted and uh, I, I didn't imagine that 60 years later I'd still be saying the same thing. But, but he, there is still things in us that are a part of that sin nature that he's, he's dealing with and he's helping us deal with them and he's helping us own them and then say, yeah, yeah, that's what... 
That's what God wants to change. Uh, he, he's promised us joy. I love, I love this concept of joy. He hasn't promised us that we will be hilariously happy every minute of our life because there are troubles to be faced. And Paul demonstrated that, that he was serving God with his whole heart, but he had more troubles than you could poke a stick at. And, uh, and he had to face those troubles. But he said he faced them with joy. And the joy is, is this sense of, of well-being. You know, Aussie should understand this better than most because we've got that lovely saying, she'll be right, mate, which means, you know, it doesn't matter how hard and bad things get, I've got the guarantee that God's love is never going to fail me and, and she'll be right, mate. A deep sense of peace and joy about being in the hands of God. And, um, and, and, and there's something else he's given us. He's given us the capacity to bear fruit in our lives. And this fruit, he listed there, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, I've been thinking a lot about that. In fact, that's what I'm writing my fourth book about. But not, not about the fruit of the Spirit only, but the fact that there are times in our lives, like conflicts, for instance, when we're in conflict, when, when if we were to go back and take hold of the fruit of the Spirit that God talks about in Galatians and apply it to our our strategy for dealing with conflict or our strategy for dealing with troubled relationships, we would find that that makes up the toolbox God intended us to use. He didn't expect us to come up with new psychology to handle difficulties in life. He's given us the toolbox and we have to open it and we have to use what's in it, the fruit of the Spirit. And then finally, the thing that I wanted to emphasize uh, and is he's given us absolute forgiveness. Thank you, Lord. Absolute forgiveness. There is no shame that you and I are meant to carry. Now, now... There's two types of shame. We talked about it with Larry. There is projected shame, the shame that we feel because somebody else has made us feel guilty. Lots of us carry projected shame. I want to tell you, Jesus not only died for your sin, but he died for your projected shame. He wants you to take that shame and place it to where it belongs, and it doesn't belong on you. The other shame is the shame we feel because we have done things that are wrong. And we have hurt, maybe, other people. And we have maybe hurt ourselves. Some people I meet in counseling carry physical and emotional woundednesses in their life because of choices they made. And they have to live every day with the reality that their disability is a result of choices they made to live life in a particular way. 
Imagine having to live with that every day unless it was possible to have a relationship with God in which he was able to say, I have died for your guilt. You can give it to me. You may learn lots of lessons out of what you've done, but you don't have to live under condemnation for what you've done. There is no condemnation anymore. Well, I didn't intend to preach that sermon at all. I have a whole set of notes for another one, so you'll have to invite me back. Um, but <laughs> next week. <laughs> Is that helpful? It, it's nothing you haven't heard before, but I hope it, You've heard it in a way that today you can say, I know there's something there for me that I can take hold of this week and apply. It might be shifting false guilt. It might be knowing that Jesus died for your guilt as well as for your sin. It might be that he lives within you, producing in you the fruit of the Spirit, and you have to use it like you would use the tools in a toolbox. I don't know what it is that you've grabbed hold of today, but I pray you have. And I pray that that will bring you to a place of deeper healing and deeper grace. Will we pray together? Father, we thank you for the opportunity we have just of putting aside everything else for a little while and worshipping you and uh, looking at your word and being reminded of what you've done and reminding how, being reminded of how relevant that is for us. Lord, we, we understand that while all this happened as a historical act 2,000 years ago, it is as relevant now as it was then. There is nothing that has changed about the reality of sin, love, and forgiveness. It, so many other things change with every generation, Father, but those things have never changed. They mean the same now as they meant at Calvary. But Lord, we want to also today thank you that we are clay vessels and we have within us the gospel of Christ. It is a portable gospel. It is meant to be shared. It is meant to be carried to those who do not know it. And Lord, we pray that you will make us so excited about what we have in Jesus that we will not miss an opportunity to love on people and to share with people in a way that says God loves you and wants to be your saviour and your Lord and your friend. And, Lord, we thank you that we are those earthen vessels. Oh, Lord, some of us are getting a bit ragged and a bit chipped, but, <laughs> but you are still as wonderful and powerful and loving in us as you ever were. And we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. Thanks, Ram. Thank you so much.
Folks, can I, can I please invite us to stand this morning and just uh, contemplate on this. It's, it is, as you said, it's, 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 you know, parts of the message is, is, is something that we've heard, but gosh, there's so much of incredible truth in what you've just put to us today and in, and in such an amazing way. So, and in particular, I'd like for us to at this point in time, just stand and, and transect with the Lord. You know, we carry particular things that we shouldn't be carrying, as you put to us. Paul says, I'm crushed. I'm struck, but not crushed. Persecuted, but not abandoned. And the curse has been taken away. Amen. So let's, let's trade with the, let's trade this morning where you are, you know, just you and God at this point in time, just make, make this your altar that you can trade with Him and say, I'm pressed but not crushed, persecuted, not abandoned, struck down but not destroyed. I'm blessed beyond the curse for his promise will endure, for his joy will be our strength. Just take, your, just take a moment right now. Take some time without any one of us singing, without any one of us even suggesting anything, but just in response to what the Holy Spirit is guiding and leading you into this place of transecting with the Lord for what an amazing work he's done.